You know, I was just recalling, as I was sitting there, I was thinking back when um, I preached on, I think it was Acts 2, I remember asking myself the question and then asking you guys the question, what is the uh, purpose of the church? Do you remember, remember looking at that question together? And the more I think about it, the more profane and the more important that question comes to me, really in the sense of, if we really don't know who we are, and especially we don't know why we're here, then where does that really leave us? Amen? And I think that the more we go through Acts, I don't know about you, but I know for me that that question has been answered more and more, especially in the sense of who we are and why we exist. And, and really, I hope today to add to that um, more and more about why we're here and not just the sense of, you know, we, we pay our bills, we look after our kids, that's important, but rather... What is the purpose? What is the core essence? What is the calling that God has for our life? And as we go into Acts chapter 17 together, um, we're going to sort of add another layer to that. Now, time doesn't really allow me to go through the full chapter. There's uh, three main points to the Acts chapter 17, but I'm going to spend most of our time in Athens and um, because really the sermon that Paul gives really outlines for us here some of the deeper uh, methods or elements of how we preach the gospel to others. Have ever, has anybody here ever been into a, in a position where perhaps you've been at a barbecue or you're visiting a friend or you are just happen to be, you know, at the park or some sort of situation where you're sitting there, you're eating your lunch, whatever is happening, and all of a sudden, when you least expect it, someone asks you about the Bible, right? Have you ever had that happen? And I, I remember this time, I was, as I was putting the sermon together, I was remembering a time when I was living with some guys in Noosa, and this was quite early in my Christian experience, and when I was living there in Noosa, I these guys would always have barbecues. They, you know, weekend barbecues was like the regular thing. People would come around and have barbecues, make pizza, this sort of thing. And these guys were not Christian, the guys I lived with, but they understood that I was a new Christian. They understood that I went to church and they were fine with that. But I remember one particular, I think it was a Saturday night, I had got back from working in the restaurant. I used to work as a cook in, in Noosa and I got back quite late and, and they had a barbecue on. And I got back and I sat there in, in the barbecue and there was all these different people. I'd never really met them before. And, uh, you know, businessmen and people from all different walks of life. And I remember sitting there just eating my veggie sausages and my, uh, you know, tabbouleh and my vegetarian food. And as I was sitting there eating my vegetarian food, what do you think people started to ask me? They started asking me, oh, why are you eating that? That looks weird. With <laughs> You know, uh, ask me about this food. And I'm like, I don't know why I'm, you know, but... As I was sitting there eating it, that conversation quickly sort of led me to say, well, you know, health and, uh, you know, also, hey, you know, I'm, I'm a seven-day Adventist, and then what do you think they ask? What's a seven-day Adventist? And so, then that started that conversation, I was like, oh, and then all of a sudden, it was really crazy. I mean, I've had many times, and I'm sure you have too, where people have, you know, just asked you about God, but all of a sudden, the, I'd say, half to two-thirds of this barbecue turned around and just sat around my table. And I'm just there eating my veggie links. And they started, because the moment I said, you know, oh, Seventh-day Adventist is Christian, and next thing, whoop, they were focused on me. And I was like, whoa, what's happening? You know, I just want to eat my veggie links. And 
they're all sitting around and then all of a sudden they just go, one guy goes, oh yeah, you're a Christian. Yeah, well, while my mum was dying, we prayed to God, he didn't show up. And then another guy looks at me and goes, I've never been to church, but that sounds like a load of garbage. You believe in that fictional book? And then someone else comes along and I was just like, just, whoa, you know? And I remember thinking to myself like, how do I communicate what, what I know about God, and even though I was new in the church, I, you know, I knew, I knew that God is love, and I, you know, the, the God that I knew was appealing. He was someone I wanted to know, but to these guys, did they know that? No, they were really coming from a, an angle where they had some elements of Christianity. They kind of knew a little bit about God or what they thought was God, but they were really coming at an angle where they were, they were seeking for some knowledge, but their knowledge that they did have was kind of misinformed and I could tell by the questions they were asking me. And so really the question I have for you today is, how do we communicate the gospel to others? How do we preach the gospel? How do we share Christ with others in a way that is productive, that is clearly understood? And, and like I always like to do, I want you to talk to the person next to you and here's the question, here's the context for you. How do you communicate the gospel to someone who either doesn't know really anything about God or secondarily has a very misunderstood or misconstrued view of God? So I want you to talk about principles, what's some practical principles that you use? I want you to talk to your your friend next to you or to yourself, whatever works, and uh, I'm going to give you just a minute to do that. And then I'm going to ask you for some answers. So just take a minute to answer this question. How do you communicate the gospel to others? Okay, let's get some answers. Does anyone want to give me an answer? Maybe a principle, something that you, you sort of use when you come across someone who asks you a question, you're, you're in this position that I was. What is a principle that you use? Anyone want to put their hand up? If, um, if I'm trying to help somebody grow in any subject, if I can give a scripture across to them, even if I don't quote it, and then give a personal testimony, Okay. Okay, John 3.16. So using a really basic text, but then uh, what that text meant to you, how that's affected your life, your testimony. Anybody else? That's, that's a great, great little principle to use. Anybody else? Talk about the times we're living in. Um, ask people questions about, you know, have you thought to yourself what's happening in the world and, and, and where does the future take it? This sort of thing, right? Do you think that's a good question to ask? Yeah. So, anybody else got any other principles? Terry? Just sharing your testimony. 
Yep, okay. Now, it's a good thing to think about because really what we find in the book of Acts and what we're seeing is really a chronology, almost a sort of linear uh, process of the Christian experience. Acts chapters 1 through to 3, the Christian churches really goes through a conversion. Then as we move through the book of Acts, the Christian church really start to learn, they start to grow, then they start to really move forward and preach the gospel, and really now we're moving into a very evangelistic phase. Now, even though evangelism has been happening, the church is really now just, just full steam ahead. The ball is rolling. They're just preaching the gospel. They're getting out there. Now they're really in unknown territory, especially Acts 17 is the first real confrontation. This is the two tidal waves coming together of the Christian faith or Jewish background of the Christian faith and the full-on Gentile pagan belief system. They're going to come head-to-head here in the, the book of Acts chapter 17. So as we look at this question how do we share the gospel? Pay attention to the way that Paul communicates the message of God, the plan of salvation to a people who really have no idea about who God is, who Abraham is, who Moses is, probably haven't heard the Ten Commandments. How do you communicate that gospel? This is what Paul is facing. So as we go into this uh, scene in Athens, as we move through it, this is what we're looking at. This is kind of this methodology. Acts chapter 17 takes us to several places, and up to this point, we see Paul's missionary journeys have taken him up through this region from Troas, and he's now moved up into Macedonia, and uh, the previous chapters, Amphilia, and we now see in Acts 17, Thessalonica and Berea is where he goes, and then eventually, in Acts chapter 17, Paul journeys from Berea all the way down to Athens. Um, So this is really taking us in Acts 17, from Thessalonica to Berea and then to Athens. So, we pick up in our Bibles, Acts chapter 17 and verse 1. Luke picks up, says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Ampelina, I probably get those words totally wrong, they came to Thessalonica. There was a synagogue of the Jews, and then Paul, as his custom was, went into them for three what? Sabbaths. Did Paul still keep the Sabbath? For three Sabbaths, reason with them from the Scriptures. And as Luke goes on to comment, Paul basically shares the gospel in Thessalonica. He has a decent amount of success. In fact, the church is born in Thessalonica. And from there, of course, there were Jews who didn't believe and they created a stir, they created trouble for Paul. And eventually Paul fled or left Thessalonica to Berea. And when he went to Berea, Paul then, again, shares the gospel to the Bereans, and the Bereans are famously known uh, for those who hear what Paul has to say, but what do they do when Paul preaches the message? Do they just accept what Paul says? No, in fact, the Bereans go, we hear what you're saying, Paul, but we're going to go back and do what? Test the Bible, test the Scriptures to see if what you're telling us is truthful. And the Bible commends them, encourages the Bereans, say that what they did was a good thing. Any preacher has their heart warmed when when he's preaching, the person says, I appreciate what you're saying, but I'm going to do what? I'm going to check the Word of God. Amen. Because what if I'm wrong, right? We need to go back and check the Word of God. So the Bereans are famously known for this situation, and I'm just skimming through the first 15 verses, and as the story continues, in Berea, 
the Jews again follow Paul from Thessalonians to Berea and stir trouble up again. And so eventually the disciples in Berea take Paul and say, you need to flee to Athens. Paul's intention was not to go to Athens, but because of the context, Paul is then led through to Athens. And this is where we pick up our scene in Athens. Paul has preached the gospel. He's there in Athens. He is alone. And so in Athens, the really philosophical and art capital of that region, Asia Minor, and some even say of the Roman Empire at the time, it was the capital center of thinking, of philosophy. This was where Plato, Aristotle, Socrates was from. Uh, Athens was the place where when you went in, there was just so many idols, there were so many things dedicated to human art, human ideas, human intellect. And in fact, the Greeks were known for taking human thought and deifying them. I mean, they had even a deity for fame. And so as Paul kind of gets into this region, he's looking there in Athens and he's looking at all the idols. And in fact, one Roman uh, historian whose name was Petronius, he wrote that it is easier to find a God in Athens than it is to find a man. And so Athens itself was full of idols. And Paul, in verse 16, if you have your Bibles really sees this and it stirs within him a certain emotion. And here as we see in verse 16, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his what? His spirit was provoked within him. In other words, he was stirred. Why was Paul stirred? He's standing there in Athens. He's looking around. He was there for several days and he's looking around. He's analyzing the people, the way they go about their lives. He's watching the way they conduct their religion and he is stirred within him. And as the Bible says, within him, when he saw that the city was given over to what? To idols. As Paul stood there looking out over the city, looking out over the people, he couldn't help but be stirred be upset, be jealous for God that these people were given over to what again? Idols. But what's an idol? When we think of idols, we think of something similar to this, right? We look and we see a a carved image, a stone, something uh, that people worship, but really at the heart of idol worship, not just in Athens, but in the entire world, is anything that takes the place of God is a what? Is an idol. Um, You know, when you think about idols, really the, the, the way to think of them is anything that holds your attention more than who? God is an idol. I mean, when we study these texts, when we go back to Athens, really what we're looking at is nothing really different to our modern culture. I mean, they had carved images, but today we just have, what, celebrities or football or something like that. In fact, the devil knows that if he can get you to focus on anything, even if it's good, more than God, he's got you. And the greatest struggle in the Christian walk, perhaps, is keeping our eyes fixed on Christ You remember I shared a couple of weeks ago about this relationship with God, right, in Genesis 1 and the whole gospel is about getting back with God, reconciling this relationship and and the devil knows that the very thing he needs to do to break that relationship is to introduce, does anyone remember? What does he need to introduce? Selfishness, right? And idol worship is, is really taking anything 
and putting it before God and then your eyes are off God. Does that make sense? And so really for the Athenians, I mean, all they were doing is they were deifying things that like fame or whatever it is that was already something that was taking their place of God. Another way to look at idols is this. An idol really represents your messed up view of God. Did you get that? An idol is really a messed up view of God. And so this is the thing. The Bible introduces for us the fact that what the devil has done, what the devil's primary object in the Bible is, is to confuse your view of God. Did you get that? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 to 6 says, The God of this world, that's the devil, has blinded the minds of men. What has he done? He's blinded, lest they see the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God. In other words, Paul is saying this, the primary thing that drives the devil every day, the thing that he does every day ceaselessly, is he tries to get you off your focus of God and onto other things. And not only that, but his, his primary goal is to take whatever you see as God, whatever your view is of God, he wants to mar that, he wants to blur that, he wants to twist that image so that when you look at God, he's not really appealing. And even if you do worship God, you're worshiping the wrong God. Does that make sense? In fact, notice what Paul says in Romans 1. Keep your finger in Acts 17. I mean, Romans 1 just, just amplifies what Paul is saying. And as he writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 1, he is speaking to them about how this, uh, this chronology works, the way that we get off track with God. Romans chapter 1 and verse 18 onwards, Paul here explains to us the way that the devil has confused our vision, our view, our understanding of God. Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the what? What do they suppress? The truth and unrighteousness. Now notice this. Because, that may, because what may be known of God is manifested in them, for God has shown it to them. In other words, what Paul is saying is this, God in, er, like in every person's heart, whether you're living in, living in Africa or Asia, in every single person, there is a void, there is a shapeless part of you, there is a hole that only God can fix. The Bible says in Ecclesiastics that God has put something in our hearts. Does anyone know what it is? He's put eternity in our hearts. Paul understands this, and as we go through Acts, you're going to see that he walks up with this premise. He knows that whether you're an Athenian, an Ethiopian, uh, wherever you're from, he knows that in your heart is a hole that only God can fix. Everybody. And he goes on, verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly what? being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without what? He's talking here about all nations. He says that the, the Greeks, the, 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 the Jews, everybody had a knowledge of God, but what happens is, as they saw God, they could see in nature, if you spend time in nature and looking at the stars, it's very easy to see that there is a divine God, there is something out there. But what the devil has done, what we have done, that what sin has done, is it's done what to us, to that knowledge of God? It's blinded us. 
So what we think is God, we end up sort of looking through this blurred haze at what God is and we end up sort of getting it wrong. And he goes on to say that what they do is they end up worshipping the creation instead of the creator, right? You know, it's interesting in the church, we can sometimes make service an idol, right? We can go on mission trips and do a whole bunch of stuff and we can get caught up serving, but not serving God, but rather serving ourselves, right? It, it happens. So many things in our life can get in the way, even good things. I do this at church and I do this at church and I do this and I help this. And Jesus is standing there and have we prioritized that relationship? Because what I hope you guys are getting from the book of Acts, what I hope you're taking away is this, that God is relational and He wants to have a relationship with you because He built us for relationships. You know, the measure, the measure of the Christian experience, there's several things that you can do to measure where you're at with God. And you know what one of them is? How you respond to evil things. If you want to know how you're going with God, look at the way that you respond to the evil around you. How does the Bible describe Job? Job was a perfect man who did what? Eschewed evil, which meant he hated evil. Do we hate evil? Does it aggravate us? Or have we become accustomed to the things around us? Have we become so caught up in the things of the world that we've allowed idols to creep into our life? Because God is calling us back, yes? As the Bible says, for all that is in the world, finish it with me, the lust of the, the lust of the, and the pride of, is not of the Father, but it is of the world. As Ellen White says, God is ever seeking to break the spell of infatuation that holds men's minds absorbed in worldly things and to awaken a desire for the heavenly treasure. God is ever seeking to break you from the idol worship in your life, whatever it is, whatever it is, He's trying to break it. Do you feel him every day doing that? Trying to pull you back to God, trying to pull you back to the Word of God. But as we see in Acts 17, Paul was not interested in the art and the sophistication around him. He was not interested in the intellect and the wisdom of men. As Ellen White says, the apostle was not deceived by that which he saw in this center of learning. His spiritual nature was so alive to the attraction of what? Heavenly things that the joy and glory of the riches, which will never perish, made valueless in his eyes the pomp and splendor with which he was surrounded. She goes on, as he saw the magnificence of Athens, he realized its seductive, what? Power and power over lovers of art and science, and his mind was deeply impressed with the importance of the what? I wonder, friends, and this is a challenge to me, when I look at the world around me, when I look at the way that people are living their lives, am I just satisfied? Is that business as usual? Or am I stirred in my heart that I want them to know the living and the loving and the beautiful and the awesome God of the universe? 
Can I not sit still but just share in some way, whether it's through my, my, my mouth or through my actions or through love, whatever I can do to communicate to them a God of love, the plan of salvation that he has for their life. Paul is stirred and as he is stirred, he begins to preach and teach in the marketplace. He begins to move around and here is a picture uh, of the Agora uh, just down here is where Paul actually preached in Athens, and um, this is the sort of the ancient marketplace here. And Paul, as he walked around, he started to preach and teach to the people, and he really stirred up uh, certain philosophers, as the Bible says, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And uh, as the Bible says, the Epicureans and the Stoics came to him and sort of asked him about what he was teaching. There were several reasons for this, and we'll look at that in just a moment. But, to, but who were the Epicureans? These philosophers, these uh, Greek philosophers, the Epicureans, they considered happiness or the avoidance of pain and emotional disturbance to be the what? Highest good and advocated the pursuit of pleasure to be enjoyed, really above anything else. To them, the gods may or may not exist, but if they do, they're out there somewhere and we can't really know them, but they're busy doing their own thing. Therefore, we're kind of left here and, well, YOLO, just enjoy life right? Just enjoy life. Does that sound like some perceptions today? A lot of people today either deny God or if they, there is a God, they don't really know Him or interested in knowing Him. In fact, that leaves you then with the premise of, well, I don't have long to live, therefore what? Enjoy yourself. This was the Epicureans. This is what Paul was facing. This was their philosophy, their thought process. The Stoics, on the other hand, were, on the other hand, was really the opposite of the Epicureans. They were members of the Greek school of philosophy by Zeno in 308 BC. They believed that God determined everything for the best and that virtue is sufficient for happiness. To them, there was a plan. There was a structure. For them, it was about finding out. In fact, it says the Stoicism was thus deterministic. Things are the way they are and they can't be changed. To find true happiness, they believed, one should understand the course of nature through reason and simply accept the things the way they are. So here we find an almost ancient agnosticism. As N.T. Wright says, uh, that was really coming off the theories of Plato. According to the, the this is their theories um, of the ancient Greek philosophers, that according to the academic point of view, there is simply not enough evidence for us to be able to tell whether the gods exist or not. And if they do, what if anything they want from us, this can breed a shoulder-shrugging, couldn't-care-less attitude, or it might produce, and Paul gives it the benefit of the doubt here, a kind of humility and openness, a ready, readiness for something new. And so here we see that Paul, as he analyzes these people, as he looks at the Epicurean, as he looks at the Stoics, as he sees their philosophy, as he listens and talks and asks questions and shares the gospel, he sees that although these people don't deny the existence of God, or at very least, they're agnostic, Paul sees that in this situation, there is the possibility for openness. And so as Paul is then ushered into uh, the Areopagus, the, the, the um, Epicureans and the Stoics basically say to Paul, well, we want to hear more from you on this subject. Come up to the Areopagus, or translated Mars Hill, and in the council, away from the hustle and bustle, we'll hear what you have to say. We'll listen to your theories. Now, it's interesting as to why exactly this happened, but 
there's two main reasons I want to bring out, and, and I'll come to that in just a second. But basically, as Paul is considering this, as he's moving up to this council, as he's going up to talk to these Greek philosophers, this is really the mindset that he's dealing with. This is kind of their premise, their theories of life. Simply this, the gods might exist, but we couldn't possibly what? We, we couldn't know them. I mean, they might exist, but no human being can know God. Did you get that? That's important. We, we're going to come back to that. There might be gods, but we can't know them. Secondarily, then if the gods are out there, then they're not really interested in what? Than us. So one, we can't really know God. Two, if they are there, they're not interested in us. They're kind of out there somewhere in the cosmos doing their own thing. And this is really uh, classic of Greek mythology and idealism. So third point is this, since they're not interested in us, then the purpose of life is to have as much, what? Fun as possible. This was the Greek ideal. This is kind of the way that they were thinking. And so this is what Paul faces. And this is the challenge I put to you today. This is nothing new. In fact, today, this is what we face today as well. The majority of people that I meet in the community, the majority of people that I talk to in the street, as I go door knocking, as I sit in people's homes, is that they either have a view of God that is distorted, or they're not really interested in knowing what God has for their life. They're kind of happy where they are, they think they're happy with what they're doing, and they're not really interested that if there is a God, I couldn't be bothered knowing Him. This is the common thought process of the people. So, the other reason why they want to call him up is not only to hear what he has to say, but secondarily, and this is an important point, is that the charge of preaching foreign divinities in Athens was not something you could get away with lightly. In fact, N.T. Wright says, it was the charge famously and classically on which Socrates, the greatest philosopher of all time, had been tried and condemned. And as you, many of you know the story, Socrates in the 5th century BC, in Athens, the very place where Paul was teaching strange gods strange ideas was put on trial by the people for preaching strange gods and strange ideas and made to drink hemlock and commit suicide. So as Paul comes into Athens, as he's teaching strange gods, as he's teaching strange theories, the Epicureans, the Stoics, the Greek philosophers want to know, one, what he's actually saying, but two, they want to check this guy out to see if he's preaching or teaching anything that is contrary to the peace of the people, to the Greek ideals. So as Paul is ushered in to Mars Hill, on his way, he walked up what was known famously as the pantheistic way, pantheon, many, many gods. And here is a picture of the actual street that uh, Paul walked up. This is from the first century. So Paul walked up this street, and you can see there at the top of the hill is the actual pantheon, um, and to the right, you can't see in the picture, is actually Mars Hill. And so Paul, as he walked up this street, he saw the multiple pillars to the various and multiple gods that the Greeks worshipped. And as he saw these gods, one caught his attention. And the inscription was to what? To the unknown God. And in that moment, Paul knew he had something. He had a relatability, a way in, a way to communicate this God uh, to a people that were so uh, misguided, misinformed as to who God really was. And so Paul, on his way up to Mars Hill, 
sees the inscription to the unknown God. And so on Mars Hill, in verse 22, as we pick up, here is a picture of Mars Hill. Uh, There's not much left of it today, but this was the center of debate, the place where you could come and share ideas and, uh, as, as, as Luke comments, to find out new information and to share about the various gods. In verse 22, Luke comments and says, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, that's Mars Hill, and said this, Men of Athens, I perceive in all things that you're very what? Very religious, or as some translations put it, you're very superstitious. And what's really interesting is to the Greeks, they went and went, oh, well, thank you for noticing. But really, I'm not sure if that's what Paul meant. I think Paul was like, oh, I'm kind of having a dig at you. But that's uh, what, what he says. It says, I, I perceive that you're very religious. You're very superstitious. Now, is that sort of something you find today in our culture a little bit? It's kind of like all roads lead to God, right? Just pick the one that you like. So Paul begins by sort of uh, showing them this. Now, how does Paul relate the gospel to these people? How does he share a God of the Jews, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, the Ten Commandments, the Exodus, the, uh, you know, the, the conquest of Canaan, the sanctuary? I mean, how is he going to communicate all this? These guys don't even know who Abraham is. Notice what he does in verse 23. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. So what is Paul doing straight away here in communicating the gospel? Is he coming with some strange God? No. So straight away, he disarms the situation. They're thinking, okay, this guy is coming here to preach some strange God, and we're ready. I mean, our guns are ready in their holsters. I mean, if this guy is preaching strange gods... He's going to be done with. But he actually says, the very God that you have an inscription to, the unknown God, that's the one I've come here to tell you about. Oh, okay. Carry on. How does he communicate God? Verse 24. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all, what? Life, breath, and all things. So in other words, he's, he's standing there, and there is all the Greek philosophers, and Paul's are now, I'm going to communicate to you this God. How does he communicate him, in a nutshell? Does he say, he's the God of the Jews? He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? How does he communicate God? The Creator the Creator. Because for them, that's something they could relate to. And this is a, an important point, that when we come to sharing God, we have to understand that we need to meet people where they are, not where we are. And for these guys, they didn't even know who the God of Abraham was, but a Creator God is a God they could relate to. So the first thing we notice about Paul is that he finds point of what? He finds points of agreement. And it's very important that when we're sharing the gospel with others, that we find points of agreement. Not to argue, not to debate, not to say, oh, what you know is stupid. 
but to commend people where we find commonalities, to say, to listen, to see where they are, to find points of agreement. In fact, if you read the stories of the great evangelists into Africa and into Asia, when they got into the countries, they didn't walk in and just start proclaiming a God that they had no idea about, but they listened to their stories and to their gods, and they said, okay, you know the way that you relate to God? Well, these elements are true, and I agree with you on these points. Yeah, there is a creator, and do you see the difference? And so it's very important that when we communicate the gospel to others, we meet them where they are. We find common points of agreement. And this is what Paul does here in Mars Hill. He goes on. And he has made, verse 26, from one blood, every what? Nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. Now, what was the premise of the Athenians? Did they believe that God was knowable? Did they? No. So what is Paul presenting here? Is he presenting a God that is knowable or unknowable? knowable. In fact, he says, you guys think that God's way out there, they can't be known, and if they are real, they don't want anything to do with us. And then Paul comes along and says, the God that I proclaim to you, the unknown God, He is the God. He is the Creator God. In fact, not only is He the Creator God, but He's deeply interested in your life, and in fact, you should grope for Him because He wants to know you, He wants to be known by you, He wants to have a relationship with you. Does this, is this in contrast to their views? Paul touches on the heart of what and who God is, is that God is relational, God is love, and God is looking for restoration in our lives. We should grope for God. We should seek God. Verse 28, For in Him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also His offspring. So Paul here, in these verses, doesn't quote from the Scriptures. I mean, this is not Isaiah or Deuteronomy he's quoting. Who is he quoting here? He's quoting Greek poets and their poems to who? To Zeus. So Paul is standing there. And he's, he's got these guys and they, they don't know anything about the Hebrew Scriptures and he's trying to communicate to them uh, in the plethora of gods and the mixed up views of gods that they have who God really is, what God's plan is for their life and what they need to do about it. So he begins by telling them that God is a creator God. In fact, not only is he the creator God, he's the only God. Secondarily, this God wants to have a deep, intimate relationship with your life. He's personable. And then he goes on to quote their own poets that their poets wrote to Zeus. And he uses that poetry to relate their minds to God. Because he says, even your own poet said, in him we what? Live and move and have our being. He says, your poets, in, in some way, Paul is saying, your poets didn't even realize that by writing that to Zeus, or what they thought was God, is that they were kind of getting some bits right. I mean, that's what God is like. That's who God really is. So Paul is being very relatable. He's meeting them where they are. He's explaining God on their level without compromising the gospel. Amen? 
Because it's very easy. I could go, oh, well, you know, I'll start a nightclub and I'll, right? And it's interesting to see sometimes in Christianity when we're trying to communicate the gospel, we go, oh, we've got to be relatable, we've got to be relatable. At what expense, right? It's important to be relatable in the right way. Now, Jesus, for example, did he sit with prostitutes? Did he sit with sinners? That was taboo. But he sat with them. He listened to them. He asked them how they were doing. He cared about their life and the things that they were doing. But Jesus does not leave us there. He meets us where we are, but he calls us to something better. He calls us to something higher. And Paul here meets them where they are. He quotes their poets. He speaks in, you know, in an eloquent fashion, almost a philosophical fashion, meets them right on the intellectual level that they are. But then from there, he communicates to them the grace and love and gospel message of Jesus Christ. This God is a creator God. He's knowable. He does not dwell in temples. And in fact, as he was saying this, he would have been pointing right behind them to the pantheon of gods. Really, in sense, Paul was saying to them, all that stuff is a waste of time. All those gods that you've built are meaningless. God is larger than a temple. You know what this is interesting? Is Stephen, just before he was killed, said the very same thing to the Jews. The Jews had fallen into idolatry in a fashion. They had put the temple before God. What are the things in our life that we are putting before a relationship with God? So Paul here quotes from Greek poets. He draws them to their origins. He draws them to this relationship with God. And what's so interesting is that this stuff that he's saying is is, is, as strong and as poignant as it is, at the same time, he's, 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 he's walking this tightrope with the Greeks. I mean, they're, they're checking him out. Is, is he preaching something that we can just lock him straight into prison about? Or is he preaching something to us that we're interested in? You know, as we see here, N.T. Wright says, Paul is treading the fine line here between demonstrating his familiarity with their own culture, inviting Stoics to come on board with what he's saying, and offering something quite new and revolutionary. And you're going to find that whenever you share the gospel with people, the gospel equals change. And if you don't want to change, you're going to fight that change. And that's why over a page after page in the book of Acts, that when Paul comes to preach the message of good news and the God of love and the God of change, the ones who don't want to change, the wealthy, the people in high positions, the people who enjoy their situation, they fight against it. And the selfishness of our hearts will always fight against change, will always fight against the gospel. That's why the Bible says over and over, my brethren, do not count it a strange thing when the fiery trials come upon you, as though some strange thing happen unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings. All who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer, what does it say? Persecution. It's not because we're not nice people, (laughs) but because the message we bear is a message of change, and change has different reactions to different people. Verse 29, Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, 
We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver and stone or something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Paul is saying this. God has allowed you to live in your idolatry. But this message I bear is not a message of some Jewish people over in the Middle East. But this message is to all men, to all nations. The time has come for the gospel to go everywhere. The time of your ignorance is over. God has sent me to preach the gospel to you. And now you're faced with a decision. Does Paul pull punches? Does Paul water down the gospel? Does he tell them, oh, look, you can have Jesus, but hold on to your idols? No. Friends, when you come to Christ, it's all or nothing. When you come to Jesus, you've got to leave aside the things of the world. To put aside the mundane for the awesome. To put aside the, morale, the, 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 the temporary for the eternity. And it's interesting how often we get caught up in earthly things and lose sight of the heavenly things. The devil's greatest effort in this world is to put you to sleep, is to allure you to the things of the world, is to get you caught up in money, your job, your hobbies, the things of the world, while God is there the whole time with his hands out saying, when are you and I going to connect? When are you going to place me at the priority of your life? Perhaps the greatest struggle of the Christian walk is keeping focused, keeping connected, keeping right with God. Maybe you've strayed from God in your life. Maybe you're watching things, doing things, listening to things, involved in things in your life right now that you know the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you, telling you to let go. But your pride, your selfishness has held on to it. What does that matter? What does that compare to eternity? Amen? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole but loses his God is asking you that question here, right now. Do whatever it takes. Jesus said, if my right hand causes me to sin, uh, I'll keep it. I'll put it in my pocket. What does he say? Cut it off. Don't flirt with sin. Don't play with sin. Don't play with the things that are getting in the way between you and God. Smash them out of your life. For me, it was television. I'm not saying that television is bad, but this, for me, every time I'd get home, I knew I should read the Bible. Guess what I did? And I'd, oh, you know, I'll do it. I'm going to do it this time. What would happen? I'd go a day, I'd, you know, and then, it, then I was watching TV, and I was watching good stuff. It wasn't bad. I mean, you know, documentaries, and, but you know what? I wasn't spending time with God. Sometimes the good things gets in way of the most important thing. So I ripped the cable out the back and I threw it in the bin. I cut my hand off, not literally. I threw it in the bin. Did I have a problem with television? Well, I couldn't. <laughs> That's what we have to do. Is the relationship with God for you taking priority over everything in your life? Or does he get the back seat? 
Is Jesus on the shelf of your life right now? When's the last time you spent time in study consistently? You cannot make it to heaven on a spasmodic prayer life. I'm telling you, the demons out there are ready. They're waiting because they know when you're weak, bam. As a pastor, I see it every day. I see it every week. I see it in myself. And I fall on my knees and go, God, forgive me. You are so merciful with me. Amen. I'm right there with you guys. I need Jesus just like you. And God is ever seeking to break that spell. Because friends, we think that in the world is peace. We think that in the world is joy. We think that over there, and yes, there is joy. Yes, there is peace, but it's temporary. But with God is true peace. Jesus says, peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth I unto you. Not let your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. John 16, 33. So Jesus is saying, the peace that I give you is not like the world. In fact, you've got to go through some discipline. You've got to fight the fight. You've got to withstand those temptations, right? Is it hard? Yeah, it's hard. But is the rewards worth it? Any relationship requires the same thing. I want you to take your devoted card, your connect card, because what I'm saying is I want to give you an opportunity here to tick a box. If you don't have a connect card, just put your hand up and our ushers will get one to you. God is challenging us today to remove the idols from our life. What are the things that are getting in the way of your relationship to God? As you have your Connect cards, I'm going to read you just the last few verses here because this is going to draw us into our decision time because we all need to make a decision. Verse 32, before we tick our Connect cards, I want you to be looking at the way that these people respond. Time didn't allow to really dig into Acts 17 a lot, but it's given you something to think about. Verse 32, and when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, what do they do? Some mocked, while others said, we'll hear you again on this matter. And so Paul departed from among them, and however, some men joined him and believed among Dionysus and uh, Areopagite, a woman named Demarius, and others with them. Whenever the gospel is preached, there's two responses. What's your response today? Stop kidding around because coming to church, whoopity-doo. I want to know what you're doing every day. I want to know what you're doing every morning. I want to know, are you being a saint in secret? Because the, the secret to being a saint is being a saint in what? Secret. Enough of the superficiality. Let's get to the core of the relationship with God. On the Connect card, I want to know God more. When you tick that box, that's an appeal, that's a challenge, that is you saying, oh God, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to pick up the Holy Word of God and I'm going to spend time listening to you each day. I'm going to spend time in the Word of God because friends, that's where it's at. God communicates to us through His Word, through nature, through others, through the things around us. I want to know you more, God. 
To me, I don't want you to be the unknown God. I want you to be the known God. Lord, help me to remove the idols from my life. You know there's something in your life today. There's something in your life that is holding you back from a closer relationship to God. Your selfishness is overruling your love for God. What is it? What is that thing? Ask God to help you and do everything you can. Take what, Do whatever it takes to remove it out of your life. Thirdly, Lord, use me to teach the truth about your what? Friends, at the heart of the Bible is a God of love, a God who wants to know you and you know him and he loves you and you love him. That's the heart of Christianity. It's this restoration of a relationship. Restoration. As we get the musicians up to sing the final song, I want to challenge you guys not only to tick the box, but to do something about it. Don't go and get caught up in whatever you're going to do tonight. If you need to go home first and deal with something, if you need to go and deal with something, do it. Put God first in your life. Because when you put God first, all these things are added unto you. Amen.
with the precious blood of Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final that God has challenged you today, but that we need that, don't we? The Bible says that the Word of God is like a two-edged sword. And what does that two-edged sword do? Pierce to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. We need it. But I want you to know this. What does Philippians say? For I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Amen. Yes, God challenges, but He does not leave us alone. He challenges us, but He's right there by our side. He picks us up on His shoulders and carries us home. Friends, you don't need to be discouraged. You need to be encouraged because you have Christ. You have heaven behind you. And God just wants to know you and love you so much more than what you're experiencing today. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, Father, you've challenged me, you've challenged us, Lord. There are always things that need to be removed. The devil, the enemy is always there placing things in our pathway to snare us, to take us off course. But Father, today we want to redirect our minds. As Isaiah 26.3 says, the Lord will keep us in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Let us be stayed on thee. Let our minds be focused on Christ. Remove whatever you need to remove. Do whatever you have to do. But Lord, empower us. We don't have the strength to do it on our own. We need your help. Help us. Encourage us. Use each other. Let us use each other as a family, as a community, to pray for each other, to encourage one another, to strengthen each other as we look forward to the day of your appearing. Lord, bless us. Bless this church. In Jesus' name. Let everyone say.